Welcome back. In part two, we jump back in with a more controversial topic, that of John Lamb Lash, and how his interpretation of the concept of Gnosticism has become intertwined with the Mandela effect. We explore the question of whether or not conspiracy theories are dangerous to society, but also note their more playful quality as those old pranksters, the Discordians, revisit us. We then move on to the topic of memory that plays a huge role in the Mandela Effect, how memory affects history, how remembering something actually creates new experiences and can affect our future memories, and what the reward could possibly be for people who believe in the Mandela Effect. Aaron also shares some very interesting content regarding a possible pre-Mandela effect, and we close with Aaron sharing some other information about his work as a writer and editor of fantasy fiction. Enjoy! Let's talk about another example of a ME conspiracy coming from, I guess this would be considered more the occultist uh, viewpoint, and in particular, mm-hmm. uh, John Lamb Lash. He's an yes. author who came onto the scene in 2006 with his particular view regarding Gnosticism, which I found out uh, recently that this has developed into something that I consider quite problematic uh, as his ideas have changed. I mean, I was at a bookstore. I've got... Mm-hmm. I have the book right here. Uh, I was at it. the bookstore and saw this and thought, oh, this this seems to be interesting. You know, I'm all about the reading about uh, religions and different uh, ideas. Read mm-hmm. this book back then and thought, well, yeah, okay, he's making an argument that, okay, Christianity is is not really – not really the best religion because it it killed out uh, paganism and and, and just right. put it very 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 simply and very bluntly, um, <laughs> and you know that of course he had that stance okay anti Christian but that's yeah. kind of where I thought it ended but that doesn't seem to be the case anymore mm-hmm. anyway if it had been uh, so can you talk more about this. Yeah, he's an interesting example, which relates to this new age, um, the new age interpretation and the the biblical interpretation. Because one of the things I noticed that was interesting, and in my paper, I tried to argue that certain elements of Christian culture are being part of this cultic milieu now. And I guess we could say, as you mentioned at the beginning, that this partly because of the science, the dominance of scientific interpretation of events and reality and so forth. Um, but they will now, you will get, and I've watched some of these, very interesting dialogues between, like a podcast, for instance, between a new, a, a predominantly new-agey person and a one of these dispensationalists, we could say, or at least a red-pilled Christian, which I talk about mm-hmm. in my paper. And they will have a podcast about something like the Mandela Effect and talk about it. And they agree with lots of points, but there's a certain point where they stop agreeing. And, and they're usually polite with it, but they are having a kind of dialogue which I found sort of interesting to see New Age as if, if, if the scenario they paint is true, that science is sort of marginalizing something like spirituality more and more, then naturally these two would start to bump up against each mm-hmm. other in this, in this, in this zone. Um, yeah, so that, that's just to finish that. But to, to move on to, to John Lamb Lash, the one thing I would want to say is there's a dissertation that came out recently 
uh, from Rice by Matthew Dillon. And it's called The Heretical Library, the Nashmadi Library in American Religion and Culture. And it came out a couple of years ago. It's really good. And he goes into John Lamb Lash's history with Gnosticism in there in a really good way. So I mentioned it briefly just because he popped into the Mandela effect world for a little bit there. <laughs> okay. But yeah. he's an interesting case study, actually, that I think that ought to be more looked at, to be honest. And I think it's good that um, in this dissertation, they do talk about it. This gets into um, the, pro- so the problematics, we could say, of the Mandela effect. But it's, in a certain sense, it's p- problematic of a larger event that's happening. And the way I would interpret it is, you know, these preachers that I was just mentioning about are having these emotional videos. Mm-hmm. The state that you see them re- responding with is a kind of fight or flight feeling. Yeah. This is the way I would try to inco- mm-hmm. in- respond, uh, interpret the response to people ha- having these experiences purely by stuff they're encountering online, which is an interesting phenomenon in and of itself. So if you look at, and when I was first researching this, <clears throat> this was the pre-Trump world mm. and things were different uh, back then. But so it wasn't, people were not as freaked, the, the Christians sort of were, but there wasn't, um, as things escalated, particularly after the first election, it seemed like a lot more people um, in this community felt attacked, felt this kind of like, and w- w- seemed to come from a position of fight or flight. And this leads to like radicalization is what the, way I, the way I kind of see what's happening from just my own observation. I'm yeah. not really writing about it. Um, so in his case, this also happened between those years in, in his um, thinking. Okay. Uh, and that's the way I would try to interpret what happened. Yeah. At the same time, he is definitely um, the kind of person, in my opinion, who has had, um, he kind of speaks like a prophet, I guess, mm-hmm. but he's definitely had like, for him, legitimate spiritual experiences that the way he talks about it is that he is into this Gnosticism thing. He's a worshiper of Sophia. He's very against Christianity, as you mentioned. And he thinks, feels himself to have had an experience, a mystical experience, which he's came into contact with the goddess Sophia who lives in the earth. So he, in his mind, he has this kind of meditate, meditative, um, almost shamanic is the way he talks about it, um, connection between the goddess Sophia and in the earth and then him, his, himself. <laughs> and then he can kind of get the, he's like the conduit then for the Sophia. Yeah, that's just a little bit of background. There's okay. a lot more one could say about him. But in terms of the Mandela effect, I, when I was researching this whole thing, he at the same time had come in contact with it. And then I can't even remember how I came across these, to be honest, but he started a whole series on YouTube, which is all taken down now. And again, because this is sort of, this is after Trump, but it still isn't into the realm of uh, their fake news was a thing, but fake news that currently is, is a, is a one, like I write a lot about these subjects and lots of things get taken down off the internet all the time. The stuff that I research, okay. <laughs> either it's the people themselves doing it because they're afraid or it's, it, a lot of times it's just being taken off because it's, it's this dangerous fake news mm-hmm. situation going on with the, the tech companies. So when I'm writing about this, it's really strange phenomenon to this, the stuff that I was citing and writing about just sort of vanishing. If you try to cite it, like the links that I put in my papers, I just had one come out about 5G and coronavirus. It's coming out soon. A lot of the links I used in that uh, no longer working. So I have to then kind of rethink, oh, how can I actually show people that this is what was going on? But so anyway, his, his, his whole... This whole series is now gone. I think he, I think he took it down himself, though, and oh. it sort of made something else out of it. 
Um, but it, but he, but I also think he took it down because it got, it started out in a certain way. Well, I think it started out radical as well and got more, more so. So it's not something he would probably want to have out there at the same time, you know, in this, in the current, mm-hmm. uh, situation, but to put it in a nutshell, which I talk about it in my paper, the Mandela effect, he interprets it as a, a kind of a racial awakening, I guess we would say, and that. It's the goddess Sophia's return. He interprets a certain part of the Gnostic Gospels as, uh, or the Nakamadi scripts as this Sophia's correction as a kind of endgame scenario for the Gnostics in which Sophia returns to correct the problem of the fall uh, from when Sophia fell and then the, the Demiurge was created and all this mm-hmm. stuff. So for, for him, the people who realize, recognize the Mandela effect and, have, and realize that it's wrong are sort of being pinged by Sophia to kind of wake up, basically, to notice the changes, to have their attention uh, directed in a different way. So that, that's kind of his starting point. But he that isn't where he stops, though. He then builds this whole other uh, kind of vision, I guess, with it about why is she waking up? What is she trying to correct? Well, it's actually that the, the children of Sophia are the white people or the Europeans, as he frequently talks about it and that these are the, it's the white genocide trope, which most people are familiar with that turns up here. I don't think it was there prior to these years. You know, this is something that came in later. I don't recall it this. being there. I no, mean, I, I read, the, I mean, it's been, it's, we're talking about memory here and how that's right. sometimes kind of faulty, <laughs> but I don't yeah. uh, recall him ever bringing up anything like this. So in the book from 2006, so yeah, okay. and I would put this as part of this period of this sort of fight or flight radicalization that is ongoing. <laughs> it's, it's, okay. it's now, that's one of the ways I would in, try mm-hmm. to think about that. But it's also a logical extension of his Gnosticism. And in the dissertation, this is what's pointed out, which is a problematic of Gnosticism that it, in that it has these anti-Semitic, um, mm-hmm. can have these anti-Semitic qualities and interpretations. So really, if you listen to the John Lamb Lash guy, he, he is... The way he interprets the, the Gnostic scripts, he is logically following those interpretations to their conclusion. Like he's not in his own in his own interpretation of it, he hasn't sort of deviated from there. He's like taking these ideas to their logical end, essentially in his own interpretation of them. But then that's mixed in with this uh, all this conspiracy theory culture stuff that um, that has been everywhere lately. But just to finish his his view of this is the Sophia, the white genocide scenario is actually propagated by the archons and the, um, the demiurge, which is the, the faction, the, the Semitic faction of humanity. So he does, he does, um, he does and uh, describe this in terms of the Semitic element being this sort of alien archontic. And he describes them as a master race element and that the white people, the Europeans are the ones who are sort of responding to Sophia's awakening through this Mandela effect, and that the Archontic, um, who work through both Judaism and Christianity, because he sees Christianity as the sort of like, um, you know, the global arm of of uh, Judaism in a certain sense. It's like has its roots in in the Semitic uh, religiosity, you know, or something like that. And he's ha- he's in this pagan Gnostic mm-hmm. mode. So anyway, that's um, that's an area that there you don't find a lot of stuff like that, to be honest. But you do find it sometimes, and you find it uh, in him. So I'm not really sure what to say about that, other than it's an interesting, uh, yeah, a, a interesting part of it. It's uh, I mean, when 
thinking about, you know, you and I, when we, when we study about things like this, you know, we're always dissecting everything and, and looking at, mm-hmm. you know, looking at things. I'm, I'm confused as, as to how he is conflating Sophia and Gaia, um, mm-hmm. as if they're the same, uh, entity. Uh, but right. then to think about just looking at the Gnostic, uh, thought, uh, you know, situated, uh, in a, in a particular time period, what they, what they were talking about, what they were arguing against. I just, not that I am an expert on, on this, uh, this particular topic, because I didn't know that, uh, that Lash mm-hmm. had these, uh, ha- had this kind of change of thought, uh, over the, over the years, I wasn't aware of this, but just on the, you know, just as a kind of a, a religious studies scholar thinking about, oh my God, there's so many holes in this. So it's, but, um, but that doesn't really seem to matter, I guess, when we're talking Mm -hmm. about conspiracy theories. Right. That could be partly the way I presented his ideas because I'm certainly not, I haven't read the book uh, that you have. I knew, I knew of him. I knew of him because of, um, I studied Rudolf Steiner for my dissertation and Max Weber. And he used to be a Steiner person in New Mexico and then broke with them. I think over the Christian elements because the anthroposophists are have this sort of very, very Christian esotericism or something, but it could have been partly the way I presented his ideas. But I do also think that the reason why he's like brought up in this dissertation is to sort of show that the way he's interpreting the Nag Hammadi text is his own um, interpretation of them. It isn't like a scholarly, um, at least it's not something accepted by the scholarly community on Gnosticism currently. And then we get into stigmatized knowledge. So here right. we go. And there he <laughs> is. He's standing with the whole party, right where he should be. <laughs> so it fits perfectly. To... Yeah, and that was an interesting element because it is he is directly coming from this more esoteric. Um, so I did want to put that in there. There are mm-hmm. other people, esotericists, talking about this more in a new age mode. And this is 2012 has happened we are at the next level of consciousness evolution, which is sort of what he's saying too. He just has this whole other uh, narrative with it, but that now's the time to, you know, wake up, something like that. Wake up your spiritual consciousness. That would be the more new agey light. Is it still connected with the sacred ecology that he was talking Sometimes. about back then? Cause that's kind of the, mm-hmm. the, what I remember anyway, from, from his narrative then was that, uh, Sophia was trying to wake awaken us to the the sacredness of Gaia, right. and that we should kind of look more towards uh, pagan worldviews, pagan ideas, mm-hmm. and that's basically more in line with Gnostic viewpoints than Christian viewpoints right. or judaic viewpoints i i guess it of course it is a polemic you're you know you're arguing against a, a particular religion and in his case he's he's kind of thinking of christianity and judaism as kind of the same thing um right. even though they are not the same but in any case mm-hmm. he is i mean i understand the polemics i mean there's always polemics but this to me this way this the way you're uh Describing it in your article, this 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 new kind of twist that he's put on things, I I just uh, I get to I get this feeling of like 
uh, gross. It's, ugh. Right. You know, I just, I'm like, oh man, this is, no, don't like it. And it's a twist that's been put on a lot of things, actually. So mm-hmm. this is why one of the big problems, I mean, in the United States, this is a, I mean, everywhere, but in the United States, the, the thing on January 6th and all of this, yeah. the, Q, yeah. the Q thing that I talk about at the end, it isn't like it's just this person who found, who went into this mode of feeling of, of attacked and then kind of radicalizing. So I, that's the way I would try to understand it. He is still talking about this way you described it, the, net, the, the sacred ecology. And, and in fact, it's the technology, and this is true for the, for the other, other groups too, it's the technology that it's this evil. And this mm-hmm. goes back to, to you know, I write about this in my dissertation um, at the beginning of the 20th century, that technology being connected with these anti-human, anti-nature, it's like the romantics, you know, the romantics right. or something, anti-nature, anti-spirit mm-hmm. forces. And it just seems to have taken on a very dark and harmful type of narrative as well. And right. um, I, I did want to ask you if there were other examples that you had found uh, mm-hmm. that appear to have these types of um, problematic dimensions. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you mentioned Q. That's this whole thing that uh, that has uh, arisen, this QAnon right. thing. But uh, – that would that would be another example of it. Well, I don't know that the Q people. I mean, they're, they're both. That whole thing is part of the cultic milieu, we mm-hmm. could say, but it's also not because it was majorly covered all over the news, and they were all inside the White House on their cell phones, and, and so it's really not. That's not about as unfringed as you could get being in the White House. Yeah, so it, it, <laughs> yeah. That whole paradigm is kind of breaking down, but yeah, <clears throat> um, we could still, I think, think about that. These are arising in these sorts of environments, these underground types of environments. And um, so I don't know, I haven't looked much into Q in connection with the Mandela effect, but you do sometimes find the people talking about it in there. I would imagine they would interpret the Mandela effect more as this government uh, um, through the tech companies trying to destabilize people like psycho, psycho, psychological operation. It's probably the way I would think. Okay. They would interpret it that. But, so this would be more <clears> like um, MK ultra type of thing. Stuff like okay. that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But, and I didn't find anything else. And again, I stopped looking after I wrote the paper, but the, the places where I thought people could look more is, and I, I delivered this paper once and someone asked me a really good question about this. And for instance, if someone wanted to look at the figure of Nelson Mandela, why is it centered around Nelson Mandela in the first place? And there's one could draw interesting conclusions from that and, look at the racial dimensions of something like that. In fact, when, when Lash starts his series, he introduces Mandela as an anti-white Marxist uh, thug yeah. kind of a thing. You know what I mean? That's the way yeah. he starts the narrative. Right. So you, you could uh, look at it in that way. But the, the other one that I wanted to mention here, which is another way you could look at this, is the what you brought up earlier about foreign names and the Bernstein mm-hmm. bears. Mm-hmm. Now, um, what I, when I was researching this, I was, of course, aware that many Jewish people changed their names in, in order to, you know, get better positions in society and to hide out and, and things like this when they were facing persecution, particularly I'm thinking in like 19th century and early 20th century and stuff like this. Mm-hmm. So I, I did kind of think about that. I remember when I was first researching this. Well, if you go to the page of this, uh, the, we're living in another dimension that I mentioned uh, earlier. That has like something like 300 comments on it. It's just has a lot of, it had a lot of discussion at the time. 
and, and again, this is like we can't, I don't know how one would, would verify this, but it is an interesting development that one of those comments was purported to be the son of Jan and uh, of the, Bar- the authors, the couple who wrote the Bernstein Bears. Right. So you're talking about Reese's uh, yeah. article. Okay. Yeah. And there's something here that happened actually that I is, um, let me see if I could bring this up. There's an, another element to this that I just found, which I hadn't put in the article. So this person posts a comment saying that these are my parents. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is all very interesting what you're saying here about my parents' last name. Um, and here I'll read is what, he's, what he wrote. This yeah. is it. I took it from the blog. He says, I normally don't comment on blogs about our family name, but yours was so unusual and imaginative that I thought it only uh, appropriate to add my thoughts. Berenstain, according to our family lore, was an attempt by an unknown immigration officer sometime in the late 1800s to reproduce phonetically a highly accented version of the traditional Jewish name Bernstein, as pronounced by my grandfather's, my father's grandparents when they came to America from Ukraine. In that linguistic region, the name tended to come out sounding like Bernstein, I can't say it. Um, anyway, since that's how our name was originally documented, it has always been spelled that way by our family. So he says, you know, great theory, but he brings in this element of the name change mm. for these purposes, for these reasons. Yeah. So there's probably more there that these first two examples do have these racial connotations that one could think about. And I didn't go into that so much in my paper, but I think that there is more there. But so one interesting thing then about this, which is going to get us back to these uh, the, the Christian interpretation, actually. So then Reese responds and says, thank you very much for explaining your etymology. It could just be a Discordian writing this thing. Like, I don't know. We, they have to take it for, <laughs> that it's actually the sun or something, you know. So he treats okay. it as though this is the real person. Yeah. He says, thanks for the, explaining the etymology. I have nothing better to say, so I'll just give my condolences on the passing of your mother. The article talks about he noticed the name change when the, if the, the authors passed away and he saw kind of an obituary. And that's where he noticed, first noticed the spelling change. Mm. He says, thanks for the, um, the, you know, the, the, all the work that they've done. Um, then he says at the end, he says, also, I appreciate the new direction you've taken with the bears. So apparently he now writes, the son now writes, the Bernstein Bears has oh, taken okay. this over. Okay. He says, um, I appreciate the new direction you've taken with the bears to present, to present the gospel. Ministry to children is an important area. Thanks again. So when I read that, I thought this is sort of strange. It's not a very Christian blog. It's a very scientific science. Maybe the person might be a Christian. I don't know. But it was interesting that that was brought up. So I then had to go look to uh, Wikipedia, which I call Operation Wikipedia Mindfuck. <laughs> talking about that on your show. And what do you find there? You find this passage, which I'll read. Bernstein's father was a secular Jew, and his mother was an Episcopalian. He and his brother were raised in a secular household, Bernstein began investigating Christianity after he married and sent his children to Quaker schools. He was baptized in a Presbyterian church and eventually partnered with an evangelical Christian publishing company to produce religiously themed Bernstein Bears books. For example, the Bernstein Bears say their prayers. So for me, the, my conspiratorial mind, it all has now come full circle <laughs> that even the Bernstein Bears are living in the end times. And uh, have, maybe they have the ME also and think the Antichrist is coming. That so, that is wild. That is wild. yeah, and I hadn't found that before, to be honest. So was, that was an interesting detail. Yeah, but uh, it's sort of a joke. But I, th- I think it is interesting. But there are there is more on the on the racial um, some of the racial elements that people mm. could other scholars could write about if they were interested. 
Okay. Well, this this is incredibly <laughs> interesting. I'm, I'm just I'm fascinated by all of this stuff. It's really fascinating. Oh wow. Okay, so you brought up the mind fucking and all of that stuff going on <laughs> with the Discordians. Um, you yeah. explore the question of whether or not conspiracy theories are harmful to society, and also note, however, how pop culture shows like the X Files demonstrate, quote, a playful, parodic, self-reflective critique of power, end quote. And this playful dimension, uh, referring to housing as homo ludens and the whole concept of ludism and play, how this is serious play, um, Mm -hmm. that this is a characteristic uh, feature of the Discordians. And you mentioned uh, my last podcast episode with Christian Greer when we were talking about that. Um, Which is great. Thank you. (laughs) Eric Davis notes in his book, High Weirdness, that the phrase conspiracy theory wasn't really used or understood culturally until 1964, quote, when it was used by both intelligence agencies and media organizations as a basket term to categorize JFK assassination scenarios that did not support the lone gunman theory adopted by the Warren Commission, end quote. An example of this would be the position that Jim Garrison took when he reopened Mm -hmm. the case, in particular the idea that the Bavarian Illuminati were somehow behind the assassination of the president. And talk of the Illuminati was also present in the political discourse of the John Birch Society in that time. Uh, Christian and I didn't really cover the, the whole conspiracy aspect in detail. So I'd like to ask if you could elaborate a bit more on what the Discordians were up to with their Operation Mindfuck and how (laughs) this forced people to question what is real. Uh, Also, uh, second part of the question, do you think this this humorous slash chaotic way of presenting conspiracy theories with the idea and the attitude of nothing is true, everything is permitted, Uh, change the future of conspiracy theories from that time on and even perhaps laid the foundation for me to be a thing yeah wow that's a it's a really good question i I mean i the i'm learning about these discordians also from both listening to your show and we talked about the adam curtis documentary i do know uh, some about them but they were just a small part of what i was thinking about with the mandela effect and it was mostly to look at the the trajectory of conspiracy theory from moving from right wing to left wing and to back again okay. in a general generally speaking and so the discordian strand this ir- ironic conspiracy theorizing and play and parody and and sort of um you know tricking doing tricks and pranks to get people mm-hmm. to wake up that this is sometimes thought as to how the left how leftist conspiracy theory looks, uh, and that it sort of culminates in the X-Files in the 90s. Then you had 9-11 happen, and that was a, a quite a traumatic event that you still had, then had people questioning the 9-11 account, which were mostly on the left. But when Obama got elected, there was this kind of a sea change here in which conspiracy theories sort of moved more to the right. Not totally, but it started to. And then when you have the election uh, of Donald Trump, you can kind of see it all coming out of into the into focus there uh, i think all but it's funny though because when i say it that way if you all those elements are still there the discordian elements are, are sort of on both sides now and so I, when we were your podcast the last one you had with christian greer he 
sort of wanted to distance the discord, the history of discordianism from current um, current goings on. And I agree they're different in that one uh, is more after humor and trying to wake, to wake people up. But I would probably be a little more skeptical and think there is a kind of direct influence, at least in a um, at least in a, a sort of cultural uh, setting that the, the culture that um, they helped uh, popularize was in this kind of cultic milieu to a certain extent. And the cultic milieu is now merging with all of these other areas. So I think that those elements are there, not directly from these discordians, but there is a, a line of influence that I think we could talk about. And that has particularly has to do, if you uh, think about it, with the people who started it, were these sort of Ayn Rand at the time, uh, libertarian anarchist um, and you do find a lot of that type of rhetoric in yeah. these uh, in the Q movement yeah. as well. So, in my opinion, I don't, I wouldn't conflate the two, but I would definitely try to say, well, there's a little bit more going on there. I think, um, but to, I did have one thing I wanted to say that this made me think of this question. And so, when D- Eric Davis is talking about the beginning of this term conspiracy theory, mm-hmm. there is a theory that conspiracy theory was. Um, invented by the CIA in the '60s to silence people as a silent as a weaponized term to silence people and to uh, shut them up and, and like discredit them publicly, mm-hmm. something like that. You can scholars have been looking at that to see where did this theory is that true and where did this theory come from and it's sort of a debate honestly. There, I mean, it, there's no direct evidence to show that the CIA did invent the term and the, the term actually did exist before. You could find it. So they clearly didn't invent the term. Okay. But I was looking at this period, and what I found so interesting is so Hofstetter's uh, essay or a speech that he gave about the paranoid style in American politics. He, um, in that essay, in that famous, it was a presentation first before it was published. He gave a lecture, and in that lecture, he talks about how paranoia, this dark paranoia, is a form of American politics and needs to be, uh, you know, it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. This paranoia, and also that. These conspiracy people who who are using this paranoia make the leap. He says the leap from the rational to the imaginal, and they sort of make a leap in judgment, and that this turns them into authoritarian authoritarians and militants, is what he says. So he gave that lecture the day before uh, JFK was assassinated. So that immediately sets up this um, moment where uh, questioning. It was already kind of a problem. You can look back at the MacArthur area and all this stuff, but it does set up this moment of transition where this, the idea of conspiracy, you know, being a conspiracy, labeled a conspiracy theorist was somehow dangerous and a threat. Mm. And this started to all happen around the Warren Commission and, and around, particularly around the JFK assassination. But then when you had the assassination of Bobby Kennedy and, and civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King, then it, it just became more of an issue. Yeah. So there is a document that was released through the... Um, the Freedom of Information Act in the 70s. And this is usually the document that everyone points to to try to say the CIA invented this term. And again, scholars have shown they didn't invent the term, but the document itself, which is Dispatch 1035-960, it's called Concerning Criticism of the Warren Report. And it does go in there to talk about the problem of all of these conspiracy theories and that it says in there that what we need to, to do is to start hiring and contacting our propaganda sources in the media and what they call elite con- friendly elite contacts, contacts such as like editors and media personalities, to first of all put down this kind of um, 
rhetoric about these alternative interpretations that the CIA had something to do with the assassination, but also to use to, 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 to slander basically what they were calling these conspiracy theories are damaging us and we need to use all of these resources. And one of the things they talk about is using uh, overseas resources so that if they got someone in the BBC, for example, to, to uh, critique this, one of their contacts, then they could repost it or republish it in the United States. And this would somehow be like, oh, it's not even coming from us. See, this is coming from another. We're looking bad in a foreign country. So they did have all these tactics okay. at the time around this to, to try to deal with this problem. And what I found so interesting about the Discordians is that they also had a similar position, apparently, if we're to believe what you know, we watched in the, in the documentary and what people are writing about the Discordians, that they had a similar position about conspiracy theory, that it was somehow dangerous and needed to be publicly discredited and make the people look foolish. So I, don't, I don't know what to make of that, but I think that there's mm. a connection there. It's more complicated than the, our understanding of that. The Operation Mindfuck was it's thought to be just from Robert Anton Wilson, who comes a little bit later, mm-hmm. this notion of putting conspiracy theories out into the reality to either to, to screw with the public, to, to have mess with them, to, on one hand, to wake them up, apparently, what Robert Anton Wilson calls this guerrilla ontology of mm-hmm. like, snapping people out of their, their, their dreamy, normy reality. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but on the other hand, and this is sort of new to me that I'm thinking about, it was also because they wanted to discredit people who believed, these right-wing people who believed, like the John Birch people who believed conspiracy theories. So I think that there's a kind of complex history there that I'm thinking about currently. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, I, I, from what I'm learning about, because I'm learning like you are uh, in this period, um, about Discordian um, motivations, uh, mm-hmm. and I talked about this last time too, about how um, Thornley was actually, he was actually trying to show how ridiculous conspiracy mm-hmm. theories were and how right. yeah how on earth could you even believe in something like that 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 there was this bavarian illuminati that was still in existence that was basically controlling everything within the united states government for nefarious purposes what i'm still learning about is this uh kind of the the prankster element I wasn't born in the time of JFK, so I, that's, I, I don't have a lived experience of that. What I do have a lived experience of is this whole notion of conspiracy theory being uh, dangerous and right. the people who, you know, who believe in these types of things that, you know, there's something wrong with you if you believe in that. Because so in a way, I guess now I'm thinking out loud, but in a way, I guess those ideas that Thornley did try to put forth about, you know, how ridiculous this is, even though they Mm -hmm. were kind of doing it in this playful, spoofy, pranksterish way of just making up these (laughs) fabulous stories about about these groups and then, Mm -hmm. you know, just just making these wild stories out of it. Yeah. Um. Actually, that does kind of filter down through my lived experience of how I'm looking at conspiracy theory. Because, yeah, it my I guess my automatic natural response would be like, oh, yeah, that's just kind of for people who are a little, you know, kooky. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I, I think it's <laughs> a very interesting uh, topic, though. It's a very interesting discussion of 
yeah, just what you were talking about, how it's so complex, actually. There's so many different layers, and you can't mm-hmm. just say it's one thing or it's the other thing. But mm-hmm. And I think it also has to do with the ideas surrounding hyperstition and how there is, you know, there are very serious ideas about the nature of reality and how we actually, you know, how we actually move through uh, reality and, and the notion of time being connected with it and that right. fictions, fictions are actually not fictions they are just possible realities. <laughs> So I, I mean, I'm getting, I'm make, I'm probably not making any sense whatsoever. <laughs> no, it's, it's just this. Uh, I keep coming back to this idea of the rhizome that Robert uh, Cabrales talks about uh, it, with me a lot, and I'm getting there. I think I'm starting to get the idea, but conspiracy theories in this case seem to just fit right into that whole notion. And right. that it and it I think for that uh, for that aspect it's this idea of what's real, and what mm-hmm. it what isn't real. So yeah. and that there's and that's the Mandela effect exactly it brings that in that right. brings the Mandela effect in. So and also I think I think where it kind of goes off onto a different tangent is the the notion of memory, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. that brings this new element into the discussion. Because, you right. know, we can talk about, yeah, what's real and, and there are different levels of reality and different, you know, some people la- label that fake, other people label it true. But how we as people remember things, that's different. So, well, could I mention one more thing about sure, this uh, sure. when we're on the Discordians here? Yeah. Because I didn't answer the last part of your question, which I do think there is something to say about the Mandela effect being. Um, a thing, partly because of this this leftist irony conspiracy mm-hmm. strand, and that is the the notion of the the Operation Mindfuck was to try to wake up the sleeping masses, you know. Right. And as I, the the Mandela effect is also about doing that, and they do share it with each other. So, and they, they like to test people. Like they will go to their parents. There was even a funny one actually. Now that I'm thinking about this, with a guy who went to the Ford dealership with his cell phone and like would ask the guy that were working there, come look at this, um, this Ford symbol. Did you ever notice this little curly cue to try to see if they would have a sort of moment of like basically having their mind blown is what is the way they would talk about it. I do think though that it's not necessarily ironic, although it's a little bit more mixed now, but at any, at any rate, I, I do think that there, because of the, um, the way the area in which all of these things are being talked about, this kind of cultic milieu, those discordian elements are in there, and I think do play a part just in the overall way. Maybe this thing is 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 emerging. Interesting, interesting point. Yeah, I think the I think those discordians have their fingers in a lot of different places that I you know I yeah. didn't even think about before. So yeah, it very right. very it very interesting. When I, of course, read The Cosmic Trigger, that was probably one of my first like esoteric books that I read. And I did the thing where I went around with the, the reality tunnels and tried to imagine coins popping up on the ground. And <clears throat> Yeah. Yeah, and it just, it does, that whole approach does remind me to a lot of the ways that people experience, when they experience the internet in connection to being, having their mind blown and reality changing. Mm-hmm. 
it is sort of similar because it's like you get a thrill out of that, you know. It is exciting. It's the fun part. It's, it's, mm-hmm. It is fun. It is kind of a playful thing in that regard. Although right. there, it's, it does seem to be kind of like the flip side of the coin that there mm-hmm. is this really serious, almost yeah, scary aspect of it as well. Mm-hmm. There's Dan- a dark side also. Dangerous, yeah. With regard to memory um, that we were talking about before, you wrote in a separate article for the conversation that, quote, those who believe in the Mandela effect are convinced that small details from the past are being altered. Yet you also mentioned that what these people are actually getting that is that in history there really isn't an objective reality and that as we were just talking about memory, um, it's mm-hmm. a constructed thing. And, right. you know, we, we were just talking about all these different examples of people really thinking that they remember something in a certain way, and that's, mm-hmm. you know, different from how they remember it. But this concept of history being created in a way, I'd like yeah. you to uh, expand on that because I think that's really interesting. Yeah, and that was a later insight a little bit. When the movie came out, someone approached me from the conversation to write this article for the movie. And in that one, I made I made it a little bit more of a thing about history rather than so much about looking at the phenomenon the way that I did in the in the correspondences article. And by that time, it had sort of occurred to me more that – I wouldn't so, so much say that these people are thinking are, are what the Mandela effect is really about is that history is constructed. I don't think that they're thinking about it in those terms. I think they are really thinking about it in things are changing. Oh my God, mm-hmm. I'm freaking out. I'm experiencing both wonder and terror at the same time, which is so it's exciting and, and scary. Like you said, what do I do about that? You know, reality shifting. And then, then they start to theorize, but the, but a, a byproduct of that or a, a like a result of that process is what I wanted to say in the paper is that this then brings up the idea that because they look back in history at historical events as well and find ones they've never heard of before, yeah. which this is, well, this is the question of ignorance versus, yeah. you know, so, but either way that it has the effect of, um, of something that I talk about in this piece that, uh, that the historians are already talking about and have talked about that, you know, history is a, is an agreed upon, thing that is constructed out of a very small number of known things if you know and you have to and it has to be it's it's, it's constructed <clears throat> frequently in a culturally contingent way so there are a lot of elements that make it constructed but my point in, the, in that piece was that the historians of course talk about that in scholars but your every everyday people don't normally think about it in those terms but that the mandela effect forces a at least some version of a, of a recognition of that and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, because to a certain extent, it's both exciting. I think it would be exciting, but it also has destabilizing. I mean, an, an overall uh, argument of my of this whole Mandela effect research is 
related to technology and information technology in in particular and how it can have a um, damaging effect to psyche, to the psyche. And so Mm. if, you know, if you're destabilized and then are ready to restabilize yourself in a new way, which John Lamb Lash has done this. Yeah. (laughs) Great. Then you're fine. Sort of. But uh, a lot of people don't, aren't going in, aren't, don't have that and don't think about it in those terms. So they just sort of get hit with all of these, um, these elements. And then it's a sort of destabilizing thing. Yeah. Right. So that, so, so if I think about my larger argument, it was more about, uh, it is more about technology, advanced information technology and, and the kind of effect, mental psychic effects that it can have. And that's why I brought in the stuff about memory being also constructed mm-hmm. that, um, I mean, people are now talking about this, but overall, I would think that there was a certain, the internet and the way we're using it and the technology that the, that it functions, the way it functions. I, I don't think that to a certain extent, people understood the level of um, effect that it would have on the, the way people think and the way people experience the world and also the affective and the nervous system. And in, uh, I can't remember if it's in this article or in, in my dissertation, I'm talking about technology a lot. And I talk about the introduction of trains in Europe, the 19th century, and that with the introduction of trains, they had to start um, describing new forms of mental illness. And some of these were about fears about being on the train when it crashes. This was like a new, this produced a new kind of um, disorder, neurosis. And then, in fact, the term neurosis starts to get coined right around this time with tra- with people being afraid of trains. Hmm. So it's a kind of, a, it, what, my point with that is that there is a, a direct psychological and uh, physical and mental well-being aspect to the introduction of new technology that right. is not always taken into account. And so when I think about Mandela effect people, I'm sympathetic in that t- there, you know, whatever is going on, part of what's going on is all of this has been, is being done on Google <laughs> yeah. for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, this is an interaction with the technology that is producing these either sta- destabilizing in either a wonderful or a horrible way. Yeah. I mean, that can kind of go either ways, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, decon- deconstruction is both a good thing. It can be, but you, you do have to then reconstruct, but that's not always a good thing because we could look at the John Lamb Lash reconstruction out of that as an example, you mm-hmm. know? So it's, that's my sort of larger sociological, I think, interest in the whole thing. Okay. There was one other thing that I wanted to ask you about with regard to memory uh, is that you discussed uh, recalling a past event is actually creating a new experience and how um, our present can be influenced by the future then in this regard. Mm-hmm. And this is not something that I, I mean, I recognize what it was that you were talking about, but I didn't mm-hmm. realize that that's what I was doing. So yeah. uh, if you can give an example of what you mean by that, how the, how you're creating new experiences by thinking of past and then how that is influenced by the future. Cause this is right. really hyperstitional in my opinion, but I didn't really <laughs> think of it in these practical terms. Right. And these are neurologists talking yeah. about it. I mean, I, I delved into the the realm where humanity scholars are not supposed to go, and I pulled out <laughs> the uh, neurologists and the what scientists say mm-hmm. are, are saying about this. And my point with that was to talk about 
really just to show that the, com- the complexity of memory, but also the constructed nature of memory. So these, psych- these uh, neurologists talk about the whole point of memory research, which actually starts in Germany um, in the 19th century. There was a German psychologist named Hermann uh, Ebbinghaus, and he had this idea that memories were new things rather than um, stored things being reproduced, being represented. And then there was a hit, one of his students published a book in 1932 called Remembering a Study in Experimental and Social Psychology. And in this book, it says, the memory appears to me uh, to be an affair of construction rather than reproduction. So this is where this idea kind of starts. But it's basically accepted for the most part that when a person has a memory, they aren't pulling up an old exact copy of something that happened to them. In fact, they're reconstructing it new and having a new experience on the affectives and the intellectual level. So I I pointed that out just to show that, you know, to have the think that people are not remembering things right. is not just that they can't put in the right VHS that everyone else can put in or something. There's something large, there's a larger um, phenomenon taking place there. That was sort of my point uh, of that part of it. But the, these guys also then highlight that memory is important because the memory is able to, uh, this aspect of human consciousness is able to be in the present, but also travel into the past to revisit memories and call them up. And it's also, they, they, there's this notion of future memory that I, mm-hmm, that I talked about. Mm-hmm. And this is that this, what they call the autonoetic consciousness is one way that one scholar talks about it this way, that this part of our Consciousness can look and have a memory about what could happen in the future as though it, it did happen. And then we can actually adjust. We would adjust and respond in the present based on something that never happened in the future that we're just sort of imagining could happen. And that this interplay between future remembering, past remembering, which is not really remembering, it's just constructing things, and then experiencing the present and the sensory data in the present is all is a, is a much more complex and yet yeah, generative process it's not as kind of static process that I think people sometimes maybe would assume it is. And so in my mind, that makes the Mandela effect even more interesting and more important for um, trying to understand, like, what is going on currently? With, with right. There's a lot of people, millions of people are watching this on YouTube, this stuff about the Mandela effect. And I think um, one of the things I wanted to say about that was uh, in the paper, I then go from the this memory work into Kevin Kelly and talking about uh, the hive mind. Kevin Kelly is a famous technologist who is interested in how technology could create a, a hive mind. And um, that's about the hive mind is where all data is stored. All memories of everything is stored in the hive mind. So I tried to bring in this, uh, this complication between human memory versus digital memory. And perhaps that's a little bit to think a way to think about uh, what's going on. One of the one of the aspects, this kind of social aspects of of, Man, of the Mandela effect, the encounter between human memory and digital memory, the Google memory, or mm-hmm. something. Okay, yeah. so how would that how would that look then? Yeah, well, because the the a Mandela effect e person mm-hmm. has a memory of the way a movie was, mm-hmm. but and they have no no no. Um, there's nothing that reason why they should doubt that. Okay. Of course it is possible. You could run into someone on the street who has seen the movie also. And then you say, Hey, remember this great line. And then they say, that's not the way the line ever was. And 
then you'd have to go, okay, now I remember it being this way. And you can go ask however many people you could get to, let's say if we're saying where there's no internet is what I'm talking mm-hmm. about here. You could mm-hmm. ask 20 people, Hey, do you remember this, this line and then get various answers? That's a kind of, that isn't the way things are happening though. The way things are happening oh. is a person has a memory and the way they get the answer, the validation of uh, the knowledge yeah. is through the, um, the, the collected hive mind. Yes. And yeah. Kevin Kelly's point is that when something new, the hive mind is a thing and it's always mutating and expanding. And the way he talks about it is he says that all books, all knowledge, eventually all pictures, all everything will be sort of digitized and put in this right. hive. Okay. So if you're a person who doesn't have the same view as the hive and you're then check, you check yourself against the hive, you would get the, you would get the, the notice mm-hmm. <laughs> does mm-hmm. not conform with community standards or something <laughs> right. that you get on YouTube. But what Kevin Kelly says that's interesting is the, the person who is then can introduce new things into the hive mind that then sort of changes the hive mind itself. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think though, my main point was just to think about the the way that the Mandela effect goes down is through people checking their own memory against the internet memory. That's my main point there. And Uh, that's an interesting dynamic. That's clear now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That is that. Yeah. Because before that technology, how would you check it? You'd, you'd have to maybe go to a library. Right. Look at books. God forbid. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or yeah. Talk with other people to test their memory. But mm-hmm. this, this whole notion of false memory is, I mean, that's, that's a completely different topic that we can't get into right now, but that, right. that is also probably at play here with Definitely. a lot of uh, examples of, mm-hmm. Um, of ME. So, yeah, so I kind of looked into the sciencey side as well when I was looking at possible reasons why people might be believing in yeah. this type of thing. And mm-hmm. some of the literature on the psychology behind this claims that people may be drawn to conspiracy theories because they fulfill certain psychological motives such as reducing uncertainty, finding meaning or finding patterns, uh, or exerting control over their environment and therefore feeling more secure. Additionally, early research suggests that belief in conspiracy theories is part of our evolutionary process geared toward detecting dangerous alliances. So that's kind of like hardwired in us to be on the lookout for for shady groups that you know (laughs) might be wanting to do something bad to us so regarding Mm -hmm. the the psychological motives however the research doesn't indicate that these beliefs actually fulfill people's motivations so that's not really getting any reward from it uh and as far as the the research is now showing Mm -hmm. and uh michael barcoon uh, states that, quote, the, pop- the popularity of conspiracy films, for example, does not inevitably translate into a feeling of empowerment for conspiracy theorists, end quote. Uh, because the conspiracy theory may come across as banal or ridiculous, or it may leave some feeling as if the the dark, evil, secret forces will win in the end. So what's the use of fighting against it? You know, they're too powerful. So how do you think these types of arguments apply to ME in particular? And do the people who believe 
NME fall into these categories? Because I'm kind of wondering about that myself. And if they don't fall into these categories, then what is the reward for the people that believe in ME? Yeah, no, thanks. And thanks for sending me those articles, too, because I hadn't read that yet. Um, It is really interesting to think about conspiracy theory from this sort of evolutionary biology uh, or psychology point of view. And when I presented here in Erfurt on the Mandela effect, someone asked me this question, I think, well, what was, what is the reward? Probably, I think the person had also read Bargain's book and was asking me, what is, so what is the reward for these people? Because it's not as clear cut because you can find people who are freak, get freaked out and destabilized from conspiracy theories and they're not feeling empowered by them. Mm-hmm. Although you could then argue that, okay, maybe they get to feel empowered in a sort of knowledgey way, but in terms of survival techniques, I don't know how mm. helpful that is because you get sort of cut off from the group, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so on the one hand, yes, I could see how we could be thought of as a survival mechanism, but I would probably point more towards the satisfying wonder and terror activity. Mm-hmm. I think there's a thrill involved in part of this whole thing. And the Mandela effect does, it is exciting also to, and scary, This is that's the thrill part, to find all these things and find the world being different from these mem- these fault, these misremembered or things that are not the way you remembered them. And uh, there's a, a great book on um, P.T. Barnum th- about uh, in the United States about people going to the P.T. Barnum shows to try to figure out the trick uh, that was being um, put on. And that in this book, I can't remember the name of the scholar who wrote it. It's a good book, but he uses a term for this that he calls the operational aesthetic, meaning that there's a, there's a sort of aesthetic uh, feeling and um, an appreciation and a satisfying thing to try to understand the operations behind the trick. And this, this sort of makes the argument that this is kind of part of American <laughs> culture, that they <laughs> will get a kick out of wanting to figure out yeah. how they're being duped, you know. So maybe there's something there we could think about. But if I think about just the Mandela effect, I think the people have legitimate experiences of disruption in their um, in their psyche or in the way they're. It is a sort of traumatic thing, in my opinion, to sort of find mm-hmm. out all these things are wrong. They then manage that traumatic feeling by finding a bunch of other people who agree with them. Mm-hmm. And then also sort of forming communities and talking about it. And then they start to interpret and create a whole kind of world out of this original kind of traumatic experience. Um, I think people would find scholars, I mean, I'm hearing certain scholars I know in my head who would have a take issue (laughs) with this and say, (laughs) if a person's wrong, factually, it doesn't mean that they've been traumatized. It just means that they're ignorant. And that's what learning is. You learn what... You're, what if you don't know? Yeah. <laughs> and you just go on. You haven't been traumatized. But I don't know. There's a certain way that this goes down. And I think the internet, again, is part of it, where mm-hmm. it is a sort of traumatic thing. And I ha- probably because it has to do with, with memory rather than just purely going to school to learn a bunch of facts yeah. or something. And if in the memory research that I did, he talks about these, these um, neurologists talk about memory. The way a person knows that it's the right memory they've picked out when they say, I want to remember what happened when I was 10. And uh, at grandma's house or something, is mm-hmm. there's a certain flavor to it. So it has this this um, very subjective uh, quality to whether or not you know it's the right memory. And it's an, it's both affective, it's intuitive, it has a lot of these other elements. 
And so I think when that is disrupted in a certain way through this, in the way it's being disrupted, I think it is, um, because if you, if you watch their videos, they do, they are excited, but also freaked out. In fact, they say they're freaked out all a lot. They just say it over and over. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're, you're questioning your own, how, how own, would like, you mental call abilities. it? Yeah, your own mental, mental ability. health or something. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, mm-hmm. am I, am I going, uh crazy here if I, I can't remember things but people might think mm-hmm. that there's something wrong with them then if wait, right. if i don't remember this correctly is there something wrong so it is kind of a i understand what, what you mean by it being somewhat mm-hmm. traumatic because you're questioning your own idea of what's real you're questioning mm-hmm. your your you know the function of your brain is there something wrong with you is you do you have some kind of disease or right. that, that makes you not be able to remember things correctly. I mean, these, these are mm-hmm. things that you can, you know, draw lines to like mm-hmm. dementia and Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are right. diseases that are linked with not being able to remember things. Exactly so right. I think it does instill kind of a fear in people like, Oh, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I think there is a difference there between just not knowing something as just mm-hmm. actual knowledge and then thinking you do know something, thinking you remember it and then right. finding out that not that's not that the way, way it was. So yeah, I think you make a good point there. Yeah. And that's why I find the Mandela effect maybe more, why I focused on it, even though there's a million conspiracy theories out there right now that are all interesting for various reasons. I spent the most time with the Mandela effect, partly because of all of these things that swirl around it that are so, so much more than just conspiracy theory. You yeah. Know? Oh, definitely. In this fact, has- most, Go ahead. Sorry. Most uh, Mandela effect people don't like it being called conspiracy theory. By the way, <laughs> oh, I they could understand. Call it that. Yeah, I could mm-hmm. understand that. Yeah, it, is, it does seem to be more than and different. Yeah, just a quote unquote conspiracy theory. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. this is another thing I found out in preparation for this thing. So okay. this is why I wanted to to tell you it. And this is um, about the science fiction connection. Mm-hmm. So I did know that this uh, this franchise existed, but. I went and looked at it again because we were going to talk. And so I just want to mention this as another interesting part of the Mandela effect. If I can find it in my notes here. This is another element that people could look at, which I didn't go too much into this. But the fact that it started at a science fiction fantasy convention about alternative history and really does have a big role in the the fantasy science fiction world. Some people have pointed this out also that there is a series of, uh, of it was a it was a manga it was a um, a video game, and it was a TV series and films uh, called Steins Gate. You ever heard of this? I haven't. Two and this came out in yes, this came out in two thousand nine. And basically, the plot is the Mandela effect. Oh, and uh, the main character learns how to time travel and shift timelines, and so it can. Sh- this person can shift to different timelines, and. Um, but it, the but normally when you shift to these different timelines, you lose your memory. So this person has the ability to remember when they've shifted to timelines, what was happening in the past timeline. And the enemy, when the, the enemy organization in this that finds out that this person can do this and then comes after them is uh, named CERN, <laughs> but spelled with an S. Okay. <laughs> so in a lot of ways, it is a very, like, wherever this is coming from, this whole thing, like I told you where people say it came from, from this conference and all mm-hmm, this. Mm-hmm. I mean, that plot of that series, and when I, I taught a science, religion and science fiction class at UC Davis, and I assigned that to, uh, 
we talk about the Mandela effect in my class and I had mm-hmm. students read this Steins Gate thing. Mm-hmm. And so we all talked about it, how many similarities there are with this. Um, but there's one thing that I didn't notice until just now that the way that the main character is able to remember the stuff from the old memories from the other timeline is through a process that he calls reading Steiner. Oh. And because I'm spending my, all my time writing on Rudolf Steiner right. and reading Rudolf Steiner, I was like, what? <laughs> it's very strange. So, and is this the literal reading of No, Steiner? I don't think it has anything to do with Rudolf Steiner. It I don't know what the heck it means. But he just calls no. it that. Oh, <laughs> yeah, wow. reading Steiner. That is fun. That sounds very interesting. And it's called... What is it called? It's called Steins, Steins Gate. Steins Gate. I'm, it is worth spending some time with I'm because it really, that. yeah, it somehow plays a part in this whole thing because it's it's quite, in a lot of ways, the exact plot of the Mandela effect. So this was, am I understanding correctly that this was created before the Mandela mm-hmm. effect became a thing? Yeah, 2009. Oh, wow. Okay. It was an Xbox so game. Here we have... Awesome. Uh, Rhizomes and hyperstition again, I guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fun. Fun. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, before we close, yes. may I ask if you could talk a little bit more about the book that you've edited and will soon be publishing? Because you are also a writer and an editor in yes. <laughs> fantasy, horror, sci-fi, those genres, correct? Mm-hmm. That's true. Okay. So you found me out. I well, I <laughs> I did a little googling myself. So uh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> using that technology. But what is right. this book about? Yeah, thanks for mentioning it. I think it would relate actually to a lot of people who listen to this your podcast. And so it's a it's a fiction, dark fic, dark fantasy, mm-hmm. horror, dark fantasy story. It's not really science fiction, but it's it's called uh, "There Is No Death, There Are No Dead." And it's co-edited by myself and Jess Laundry, who's a she's also an editor and a fiction writer in uh, horror fiction and, and uh, supernatural fiction. And we collaborated to co-edit this book. And it's the theme is spiritualism. So all the stories that we've got from people will be the main character will either be a medium or it'll take place in a setting where spiritualism is going on. But it will incorporate some of the history of spiritualism as well. So it's. I think it's like about 12 stories from some really great, uh, well-known science fiction and, and horror and, and supernatural fiction authors that we got for this thing. And they will all be writing about spiritualism. Oh, that sounds really fun. But I mean, this is this is fiction, though, correct? Yeah. All wink, fiction. wink. Yep. <laughs> yes, right. But, but in about 10 years, it will be real. So just get Exactly, ready. <laughs> exactly. Okay. And when is this going to be published? When do I you expect it? I think it's it? being published. Yeah, it's being published by uh, Crystal Lake, and I think it's which is a reference to Friday the Thirteenth uh, films. I don't know if you know that, but <laughs> yeah, so he, it'll be published by this publisher, I think, in um, the fall. This fall. Okay, good. Yeah, so All we have right. a Facebook page. You can look it up. It's there is no death. There are no dead. Okay, I will be sure to include all of that in the uh, program notes for this episode. Uh, Thank you. One other question: Where can people find you? Mm, you can find me uh, on Facebook. Mm-hmm. I have a, I have both an author page and then my personal page. And then I don't do much Twittering things, although I do have a Twitter handle. But it, you could look at my Academia EDU. I, a lot of my re- writing is on there. But if you're interested in my fiction, which is not 
to research that would be to go to my Facebook page. And, uh, I also just started, I will now plug myself. I must, I yes, just, please. uh, started making, <laughs> I just started making music again because, um, we're all at home with lots of time to become more talented. So I, I've started to record music and I've made a sound cloud page and also a band camp. I think it's called page where, so I'm now releasing sort of electronic and acoustic, um, mystically, Nice, music. nice. Yeah. <laughs> and that's under your own name? J- yeah, if you look up Aaron J. French, you'll Aaron find all J. that. French. Okay, I will include that too. Well, awesome. thank you so much for a wonderful discussion. I thank learned you. a lot more about this uh, Mandela effect that uh, I hadn't, uh, of course, known about beforehand. My kind of initial reaction, I guess, when I first heard about this you know, years ago, uh, was this to kind of think, oh, that's just one of those funny things, you know, that, but I, I'm really happy to have uh, been able to talk to you about it and read your, read your work about it because it's uh, a lot, a lot more complex than what you would just first yeah. think about it. So, and right. that, yeah, there's so many different links to so many different areas as well that, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it would just be a, a very not not only fun, but very uh, informative, very interesting uh, mm-hmm. discussion to have. So I'm really thankful that you agreed to talk to me. Yeah, so oh, wonderful, and thank you for inviting me also, but to talk about this subject because it's a, it is a lot of fun, and just to discuss it with someone who knows about all of these similar <laughs> areas, I think is really productive and and uh, helps me think through the whole thing. So thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you. Thank you. I had a really great time. Me too. My thanks again to Erin for such a wonderful discussion. Please check out my social media and the program notes for links to Matthew Dillon's dissertation that covers the John Lamb Lash content, and also for the links to Steinsgate, Erin's author page on Facebook, where you can keep up to date with his new book, There Is No Death, There Are No Dead, his academia.edu page, Aaron's music outlets, and a fun website to test your own Mandela effects. Additionally, as Aaron is in Erfurt now and working with the Religious Studies Department there, he'd like to share that applications are now open for their English Language Master Program with a deadline of July 15. The link to the university website can be found on my social media pages. I hope you've enjoyed this month's episode, and as always, thanks for listening.